0: This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello and welcome to Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent, We're recording on the morning of Thursday, the 10th of November, 2022. This is the week that saw COP27 take place in Egypt. The US held midterm elections in the House and Senate and various other state races. And British actor Leslie Phillips died at the age of 98. This week is a special edition where we're going to be thinking about those US midterm elections. But as always, we'll see what else we get on to. Democracy was said by Winston Churchill to be the worst form of government apart from all the others that have been tried. This can often seem to be the case. The idea of hopes raised and then dashed as those we expected to win fail at the final hurdle. We're often left with the most charming yet inept people to lead us through. Which, of course, brings me to this week's guests. (laughs) Joining me today, we have Julian Bugini, famed writer and broadcaster on many topics in philosophy. Hi, Julian. Good morning, Simon. And we've got Fiona McPherson, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Glasgow. Hi, Fiona.
1: Hi, Simon. Nice to be back.
0: And we don't just have philosophers on this show, we are very welcoming of other people. Also from Glasgow, we have Chris Carman, who is the Stevenson Professor of Citizenship at the University. Hi, Chris.
2: Hi, Simon. Thanks for having
0: me. Uh, Great to have all three of you here, and particularly you, uh, Chris. Uh, and uh, you don't sound as if you're originally from Glasgow. Chris, where originally are you from?
2: Uh, Born and raised in Texas, but my family's all from Pennsylvania, so I actually probably spent a bit more of my life in Pennsylvania than I did in Texas. Wow, interesting, and that's very interesting for what we're going to be talking about uh, today.
0: Absolutely. So um, let's then think about the results of the U.S. midterms first of all, and then we can get on to some discussion uh, and analysis. So, Chris, do you want to explain what's happened in the election and give us the med- main headlines as you see it,
2: please? Right. So I guess I'm the uh, the, the geeky numbers political science con- contributor to, to this I, week's... Uh... I, I don't think of you in that
0: way at all, Chris, but just do your <laughs> thing.
2: <laughs> so I think the, the one place to actually start is just to take a quick step back and to, to point out that you know um, America is a, in a sort of crucial phase of, of its political development uh, in that it's, it's rather polarized. We have high levels of, of political polarization within the institutions, within Congress. Uh, but what we particularly are seeing is, is rather high levels of, of what we call affective polarization. So the extent to which one side just doesn't like the other side, you know, they don't like, they fear, um, they have very unfavorable views of the opposite side. Uh, and by any most measures of all this, this is at historically high levels. So that sets the backdrop where Republicans don't like Democrats, Democrats don't like Republicans. So where does that take you to in terms of of election outcomes? Well, you end up with a very split um, and very divided electorate. So where do things stand as of this morning? Uh, you know, the health warning that things may change by the time you hear this the The outcome is still a bit fuzzy. Um, at this stage, the U.S. Congress, of course, um, in the Senate, one third of the Senate is up for election every two years. And so it was sort of a, a, a going into this, it was it was split uh, 50-50, literally 50-50 uh, with 48 Uh, Democrats plus two independents who vote with the Democrats and 50 Republicans. As of now, we're sitting on 49 Republicans and 48 Democrats as of this morning, and we don't really know where it's going to go. Uh, Arizona, as of now, it looks like the Democrat might take Arizona. As of now, it looks like the Republican might take Nevada although uh, Clark County is still, we're, we're still waiting for votes from that, and that's the heavily Democrat area. So it's quite possible we won't know the outcome of who's going to control the Senate until the 6th of December, which would be the runoff for the Georgia Senate election. So it could be a nail-biter for a while. should also say that technically, we also don't know the outcome of, of Alaska, uh, but we do know that's going to go for a Republican. We just don't know which Republican because of the way that they've uh, count their votes. We won't know that until the 23rd of November. The House, um, all 435 uh, seats in the House are up every two years for election. Given gerrymandering and redistricting, you really only have about 35, 40 competitive races in the House anymore. As of now, as of this morning, there's 35 undeclared races. The Democrats are leading in 24 of those, GOP, Republicans leading in 11. But from the races that have been called, um, it looks like it's going to go Republican. The Republicans need right now nine more seats to, to take them to the magical number of 218, which gives them a majority. So it looks like the, the Republicans are going to, to take the House. So that's the, the national level. But you know the, the thing about the midterm elections is that there's... Uh, a lot of voting that happens across the states um you know that's one particular component of the federal system of the US is that you have a lot of state level elections and these are quite crucial for for policies so if we look at the states you know uh the democrats have have uh taken the pennsylvania uh governor race democrats took new york governor race Democrats uh, held Michigan, but crucially, Ron DeSantis, and this will probably be one that we want to talk about, um, had a landslide win for governor of Florida, which is quite interesting. One to watch that we still don't know is the outcome of Arizona. Um, That's Republican Carrie Lake um, is one of the most prominent election deniers, Trumpy candidates, and she'll be one to watch how she reacts to this. So it looks like the Democrats have done not too bad at some of the state levels. It didn't get wiped out, as we might expect. Other things to just quickly point out, uh, if I can, is there's been some interesting ballot measures because Americans, you know, they, they vote a lot. There are something like 137 different ballot measures across the states. In addition, there were 35 governors up. There were uh, 6,278, if memory serves, state legislative seats up for elections. So a lot of A lot of of different elections, but ballot measures are quite interesting. California, Vermont, Kentucky and Michigan all adopted measures uh, in support of uh, abortion rights or abortion access across those states Um, that may have boosted turnout in some, some of those states such as Michigan. Um, Maryland and Missouri adopted legalized marijuana. That, that that adds to the total, I think that now takes us to 21 states that have adopted legalized recreational marijuana. That doesn't even include the medical marijuana. South Dakota, North Dakota, and Nevada, I believe, said no to, to recreational marijuana. Uh, it's still p- too close to know whether or not Colorado is, is seeking to legalize recreational psych- uh, psychedelics. But not psychotics psychedelics uh, so that's a possibility and then there's been a quite a few uh, votes on election laws and election rules uh, Nevada looks like it might adopt open primaries and ranked choice voting that would uh, add it to Alaska and Maine which are two other states that have ranked choice voting voter ID is to be adopted in Nebraska and Michigan is expanding early voting across the states there's a lot of uh, firsts that we might want to just throw in just as fun little factoids uh, and potential pub quiz questions. There's a record of 12 female governors who are now serving, who will now be serving concurrently. Uh, So a a, record record, Number of of women, uh, including the newly elected governor for Massachusetts, who will be the first openly gay woman uh, to to serve as a governor. You have amongst the the women, you have Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who will be the first woman to be the governor of Arkansas, who was the uh, press secretary for for Donald Trump, of course. Wes Moore was elected as the first governor, black governor of Maryland. uh, So he will be the third African-American uh, elected as a governor in the United States uh, Maxwell Frost will be the first Gen Z member of Congress he's only 25 years old and has been elected to to serve in the US Congress and we also had the first uh, trans man elected to a state legislature in the state of New Hampshire so some some first I think the the just the Last thing to say is as I said, a lot of these races are, are too close to call and we don't know exactly how, how they're going to go. And so that opens up the question of what's going to happen over the next couple of days as these races are called. And people who are prominent election deniers like Kerry Lake, how do they react? Do they accept the fact that they lost? Or do they pull a Trump and start saying that no, no, you know, I actually won despite the fact that, you know, there's no evidence of any fraud, but I still won. And so, you know, of course, democracies rely on not so much what the winners do, but democracies rely on how the losers react. That's the important element of it. So that's going to be the crucial thing to probably watch over the next several days and weeks.
0: That's great. Really, really helpful, uh, Chris, for all of that information. And in fact, just uh, then think about that that last thought, and indeed the opening thought about, as we know, how divided America is, or certainly how it how it's presented in in both national media but also international media i think these these next few days really are going to be very interesting and a kind of dangerous moment given what happened when trump uh, lost uh, the presidency uh, and whether we're going to see echoes of that and i think you know just before we started recording we you know we were saying it's surprising that in the first few moments after many of the elections have happened though obviously we've still got some to 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 call that there haven't been anyone who's been denying their, their the election losers of behaving well I think um, but I think that's a really nice interesting point to start with about what we think about uh, you know the 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 state of America at the moment and you know uh, the state of democracy which is something that a lot of the Democrats were fighting on uh, this time round. And then what well, we think that the losers might do. So Fiona, Julian, any thoughts from, from you on, on that, first of all?
1: Well, I think a lot of people were really concerned about what would happen when the outcome of these elections were known. And I think very happily, at least so far, things are looking better than people expected. Uh, perhaps one reason is that some of the candidates, namely those that were supported and endorsed by Trump, don't seem to have done as well. As was expected, and I also think that because the elections have turned out, you know, everything is sort of very finely balanced. We didn't see, you know, what people are calling the red wave. Um, You know, the Republicans didn't sort of sweep into power, even even though they may end up just in power. They didn't sort of get the bigger majorities that were expected. Nor did they lose, you know, hideously either. So I think all of those things have somewhat contributed to making things a little bit more calm than we expected. The result that everyone is looking at, of course, is the Ron De santos uh, uh, case and him winning. And of course, he is, you know, Trump's sort of biggest rival within the the Republican Party. And um, it will be. It was interesting that he won with such a you know, with such a majority and that he is quite anti-Trump and that Trump doesn't seem to have done so well. So it sets things up in a really interesting way for the Republicans as to what comes next. Who will they choose um, to, you know, as their presidential candidate in two years' time? I was listening to a podcast the other day where the journalists were saying, we're getting the first glimpse of of the Republican Party that might exist post-Trump. And that's quite interesting. But I, I suppose I'm very I'm very heartened and very pleased to see that everything, at least at the moment, remains calm. And that, as Chris um, was saying, the losers are consenting <laughs> to lose. Um, I think uh, one of the areas where this ties into philosophy is thinking about consent and consent to our system. So uh, one of the first things that uh, we're taught as philosophers when we start thinking about politics is you know how come that we have this system and that we all seem to agree to it, and, and there's a lot of talk of tacit consent. Well, look, we're all just kind of born into the system, and uh, we just tacitly consent to to being in it and to agreeing to try and make this work. And I suppose this losers' consent seems to me like one of one of the the places where um, this actually has to be explicit consent. Um, uh, Is one of those places where you know, if indeed there is tacit consent, it spills over and becomes something greater and becomes absolutely explicit. Of course, there is a question whether there is tacit consent um, at all and and what it is that's propping up our system as we we, uh, sort of muddle on through it. Um, And when we get these sort of crises of the sort that we've seen in America um, of late, then Sometimes we realise that what's holding it all together is, is, is looks like a bit of a sort of string and, and sticking plaster sometimes. And, and uh, if there is tacit consent, it's all, very, it's all very fragile.
0: Great. Thanks, Fiona. Julian,
3: uh, thoughts from you? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to, to know what Chris makes of what I'm about to say as, a, as a, someone who's perhaps closer to the reality of politics and doesn't just sort of like a drift around in theory. But um, I think that we talked a bit about these um, tacit, tacit consent, And I think I'm quite interested in the tacit assumptions, the kind of assumptions people have about what democracy is and how it works, because I think that informs a lot of, of how they behave and their expectations of the system. And um, my worry is that the kind of expectations and assumptions people have about democracy are, are, are the wrong kind. Well, the wrong kind in one sense and the right kind in another because they conform more to what perhaps democracy in its original meaning was. So let's backpedal a bit, because it's quite well known that the, the ancients sort of didn't like democracy, partly because they thought they didn't trust the hoi polloi to actually make good choices and thought that only smart people should be allowed to do them. Um, we've kind of moved on from that, but they had a couple of other objections, which I think are more serious. One is the risk of democracy is it has the Leads the tyranny of the majority. So, if you have a a majority who who win, they can impose their will on the minority. That doesn't lead to a just and fair society. And another key one, which I think Aristotle talked about. um, I don't know if Plato did at all, but I know Aristotle did, which was actually the stability of the state and the good governing of the state depends on the rule of law above all else. So, the point about the rule of law is that the law applies to everyone, and it applies equally, and it applies fairly. And the problem with democracy is that, you know, if the majority can come in and they can do what they want with their majority, then they can just tear up the rules, as they were, and just create a whole load of new ones, right? So you sort of have that threat to the rule of law um, from democracy. And I think these are two really serious objections. I think what happened was that what we call democracy, the systems that we developed, managed to avoid both of these things, actually. And they, they did Partly, I think, because of certain assumptions or, or generally shared beliefs, so it was it was accepted that whoever won the election had to govern for everyone and not just for the people who voted for them, and it was also accepted that you know rule of law had to had to maintain. And so, in, in Britain, for example, we had what was called this post-war consensus, whereby new governments came and went. But no one's sort of fundamentally ripped up the sort of the things that are most fundamental to the continuity of, of the system. That, that those things were, were sort of left intact and things happened more gradually. Now, my, my feeling is that across the democratic world, people have kind of got it into their heads that democracy is a matter of people choosing a bit like customers and consumers and getting what they want. And that, and that's what it boils down to. And that means having less concern for the losers, and also less concern for for rule of law. If you win, and you can just change the law with the snap of your fingers, and that that is democracy. So I kind of think that this might be fueling a lot of the tensions we've been talking about. And you know, the thing about the con- the losers' consent is the way that might relate. I'm not sure about this. Is that because people are so Obsessed with the idea that you know the winner has the right to do what they want, that it m- makes them very intolerant of the idea that the the fair winner may not have won. That's kind of really, really, really awful. There's uh, distrust in systems. Perhaps this is a separate point. General point that I think people's assumptions about what democracy is supposed to deliver, I think, have become un- unhelpful in that they have focused far too much on uh, majority will having its way, and it's neglected this, the risks
0: of tyranny of the majority and rule of law thanks Discounts. really really <laughs> really helpful yeah just some thoughts from me just a few things and because i'm sure fiona and chris will want to come back in uh i mean just picking up on one or two things <laughs> that, that you've all said i think that uh, i think it was fiona who who said it you know it's really important actually that that losers go out and do something explicit and i think we're at a moment not just in america but in other in other countries as well, I'm thinking, you know, about the UK, but it's it's true uh, in Europe, uh, which have a lot of democracies, and uh, we were talking about Italy and, and Sweden on a previous podcast, that actually there's a kind of, as as philosophers would term it, a performative utterance here about, you know, going out and saying, you know, uh, it's I've lost, but it's okay, I've lost. And perhaps also, just picking up on, on your thought, Julian, that reminding people that um, whoever's won is... is governing um, for the interests of all people and not just um, a, a select group and, and those people who've who voted for them. I think that's very important. And I think that, you know, thinking about the, the campaign the Democrats were, were running, which was partly edging on abortion rights, but also thinking about, you know, crisis for democracy and so on. Uh, it's the latest crisis for democracy since, the, you know, in the last two years. But uh, I mean, they're, 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 there's something to that, because if, if we've got a, s- a situation over the next few days in America where lots of losers contend the election, then we're in a really bad state because there's just no acceptance of the process and no acceptance of the, of the general rules and these tacit acceptances that you were drawing attention to, Julian. So I think it is a very, a very dangerous moment, not just in America right at this time, but a dangerous moment for, for, for democracies. Um, Chris, Fiona, you got any more thoughts on this, Fiona?
1: So I like the thought about that there's a threat to rule of law. And I'm sure Chris will keep me right here. But it seems to me that there's perhaps more of that threat in the American system than there is in the UK system. So I was just there making a little list of ways in which I think you might, you might be worried about the uh, threat to rule of law on account of the republicans getting in in america so first of all um as chris was saying there's been lots of elections you know that have just taken place in america including for the secretaries of state and those are people who run the elections and a lot of the um, trump leaning secretaries of state have made very controversial statements about the elections saying things like I'll make sure that uh, Republicans win from here on out, which seems incred- an incredible statement for people to make. Uh, Chris mentioned voter ID and changing the rules about who can vote. You must have an ID and so on. That's a big issue in, in the United States. That is also one that is applies to here in the UK. But the thing that I think shocked me most when I learned about it was that it seems as if the Republicans, if they gain control, can stop the January the 6th investigations that are currently mm-hmm. underway now they can also start new investigations and there's talk that they will start to uh, impeach uh, joe biden that they will start to investigate hunter biden and various other people and um, but the thought that they can stop an ongoing investigation to say we don't want that to happen strikes me as really quite utterly terrifying it's, it seems like the most direct threat to the rule of law that you could possibly imagine, and I can't believe that the um, United States system allows that. Um, I believe that that can't happen in the UK, but as I said, Chris will keep us right on that point.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Fiona said that the threat to rule of law was greater in the States than it is in the UK. She might be right about that, but I think it's worth remembering how much the rule of law has been challenged over recent years by um, successive conservative prime ministers. So you know Boris Johnson and his government, you know this this I forget all the details about what exactly it was about this threat to prorogue uh, government, which is a word I can't even pronounce properly. But you know essentially this classic kind of populist democracy talk. They had a mandate from the election, they had a mandate from the referendum, and that meant that mandate was to put that through, even if it defied the existing kind of laws. It, it, it was it was a mandate greater than the law. And similarly, I think you know. Um, Liz Truss when if you sort of can remember the sound of her whistling past your ears as as prime minister i mean her kind of attitude to to european law and and global law around things like immigration and things like this was very much again of the view that that the mandate of the election the mandate of that majority which isn't even the majority of the people to be honest is it it's just a a majority of seats that so that mandate kind of trumps any the obligations we might have under international treaties and Agreements that have been signed with the European Union. So there's been a very, very um, strong idea. And, and what's troubling to me is that it seems that a lot of people really buy this. A lot of people think, yes, that's right. In a democracy, um, if the people have spoken, then that does trump these laws and treaties and everything. And I think that's uh, quite disturbing.
0: Yeah, one, one thing I'll just throw in and then I'll, then I'll come back to Chris and see what he makes about all us philosophers. I mean, j- just an extra thing on the UK side. That uh, I think was really troubling was the eroding of the independence of the electoral commission, which I think is is very worrying. Where they now have to answer to the government of the day, which sets the overall uh, kind of remit, I suppose, and, and the and the aims of the, of the electoral commission. I mean, so Chris has mentioned gerrymandering here, and Fiona mentioned ID cards, and of course those things have been happening quite a bit I mean under successive governments I have to say but, but particularly over the last 12 years and that's something that that really worries me where uh, I mean to put it in a different way you've got governments of a certain sort or people of a certain sort who think it's up to them not just to challenge the process explicitly but that they're in charge of the rules of the game and they're cha- and they're changing the rules of game to to um basically load the dice in their favor to, to mix metaphors a little bit chris do not we come back to you Thanks.
2: um no it, it's it's really an interesting conversation it, it all all three of you have have basically circled around exactly where you sort of ended up with simon with this idea of, of the rules of the game and the implications of, of control of that i mean julian at one point you you sort of said as almost an aside well there's this issue about distrust in the systems but we can set that aside we can come back to it but actually that's it's one of the, the crucial elements that's underlying this entire discussion is people's understanding of of process of political processes and how those political processes are supposed to to work I've long thought that it's you know there's an there's an interesting project in just sort of the public understanding of politics and, you know, what that what that actually means uh, and how people see politics functioning. You were talking about the sort of the American system. And I think Fiona also sort of alluded to this a bit too the sort of strangeness of the American system and why it's set up as it is. I mean, we could take a step back there and say, you're absolutely right. You know, the the, the guys, because they all were guys who wrote the American Constitution, you know we' we're, we're explicitly afraid of democracy they didn't want democracy and in fact the entire reason the whole system is set up like it is is it's to avoid democracy and so the 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 whole idea of, of fear of tyranny of the majority you know the fact that one third of the Senate is is elected at a time uh, the fact that the Senate actually wasn't even publicly elected, uh, when it was first set up, it was only elected by the state legislatures. The fact that the judiciary is completely separated from, you know, the the, the public, all of that's supposed to insulate the the institutions and make sure that um, you don't have this sort of tyranny of the majority whilst protecting minority rights in theory. And that's sort of the bit that we seem to have forgotten a, a little bit in in some of this. But I think, you know, it is the Republicans right now, that particularly fear this tyranny of the majority. Because, you know, they know, for instance, uh, you know, Christian conservatives know that they are no longer in the majority in the United States. And it's pretty well known. And this is sort of the dog whistle underlying a lot of the Republican rhetoric, is they know that uh, whites uh, will no longer be in the majority uh, by something like 2054 or something like that. You know, I mean, you know, it's going... Have the date wrong, I'm sure, but the 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 idea that the, you know the white population as a percentage uh, of the population of the U.S. is declining, so there's this distinct fear of people losing their their way of life, right? Uh, and so there's a nostalgia for the way things used to be, particularly amongst the uh, non-university educated white uh, working class within the U.S. And so. There is this this real fear about the way the processes work. There's a sense that the processes don't work for for us, whoever us is, any anymore. So I'll sort of circle back then to the, to the beginning about the the what I, where I was saying about you know distrust in the systems underlying all of this and people not really understanding. What politics even is? All we think of it is as is a pejorative term. We don't understand that it's simply the processes for collective decision making. And one of my sort of things that I keep coming back around to quite often, usually, is is the importance of compromise within political systems. And uh, you know, I have a, a a long project looking at that uh, with a co-author in the, in the states about public support for compromise, and we find that. Sure enough, there's distinct groups of people who, who don't like the idea of compromise anymore. And, you know, that the institutions, you know, we need to control the institutions so that we don't have compromises, which is quite alarming and problematic, I think.
0: Goodness. So Fiona and Julian both want to come in. Fiona, why don't you come in first and then Julian?
1: The idea of compromise is, is such a, an interesting one. On the one hand, it seems very reasonable. You know, we should compromise. We should try and work together. Different sides should work together and do what's best and so on. It just seems so, you know, it just seems like the right thing to do. Of course we should compromise. But on the other hand, it seems like the like the absolutely worst thing that you should do, you know, like um, I don't want to compromise on um, voter ID. I don't want to compromise on who uh, on who can change the rules when uh, with respect to governance. I want that all to be fixed and fixed in the way that I think is right. So how do you know when you should compromise and what should you compromise on? Because there's a lot that, that just seems like that this is absolutely the way it should be and any compromise and move away from that is just absolutely a terrible thing to do. So I, d- I don't know if Chris can help us out there, but it seems like a very, very tricky notion to there's, me.
2: There's a couple of interesting books out there on this. And um, uh, one particularly points out that there's a, a particular sort of Anglo-American way of thinking about compromise and more of a, a French way of thinking about compromise, and there's just there's just sort of fundamentally different views. Some some systems view compromise as being a good thing, and some systems comprom- see compromise as being a fundamentally bad thing. And so Fiona's articulating the more compromise is a bad thing idea that you know if we have the majority, we get the say, which in a way it goes counter to some of the things that we were just saying oh well that's really bad if the republicans get the majority and they suddenly change the election laws to to help them i mean there's an idea that we get the majority we get to set the laws but there's a underlying premise that they should kind of be fair so that the other side still has a chance of getting the majority if we set the laws so that the other side Can't get a majority, then that's the problem. But the the American system was specifically set up to force compromise. The reason that the House and the Senate must agree on the exact same text of a bill, down to the punctuation, um, before it goes to the president for a signature, is the idea that you must enforce some degree of compromise between the popular will, which is what the House is supposed to represent, and the states. Uh, as political institutions which is what the senate is supposed to represent and so entrenched in the american system is this idea that yeah it's going to take a long time to pass laws um, it's going to be slow it's going to be somewhat painful uh, but we will at some point enforce some idea that we must all largely consent to the to the things that that go uh, that go forward so it's just fundamentally different i think ideas about what compromise is and what its role should be in political processes
0: all this talk about compromise and knowing when to advocate and push and when to when to talk to everyone else and compromise reminds me of all the time i was a university dean but that's another whole other story uh julian
3: yeah oh well loads i mean on the compromise issue i think there's there's a kind of subtly different ways of of understanding this. So there's this sort of Southern African concept of Ubuntu, which um, is is hard to translate, but as it relates to sort of political process, or has been applied to political process, it's around the idea that what you really try and achieve is is consensus. So uh, this was quite prominent, I think, in the Durban Climate Summit many, many years ago, where it was claimed to be one of the reasons it was one of the more successful ones so the idea is this the idea of compromise is that it's kind of competing teams trading off to get to where they want to be and getting as much as they can so it's very much based around the sort of adversarial trade-off model whereas the consensus idea is that you know you actually as you have to as a group somehow be able to come around to a position even though as individuals you may not buy into it entirely i mean you know the differences are quite subtle in some ways, but I think they're quite interesting about how we frame it. Because the idea of a consensus is about seeing the the, the task of the collective as the whole, whereas compromise very much frames it in terms of you know zero sum games and well not zero sum games but trade offs between between parties. So I think that's quite quite an interesting. But on on um, trust, which I think is again we, we sort of keep sort of raising it and not quite. Uh, delving into it, I mean, I think that is a huge thing, and I suppose my concern is that you've got to take really seriously the idea that the the lack of trust is is not unreasonable entirely. Um, you know, Chris was talking about public understanding of politics and a certain amount about public ignorance, and I think there's some truth in that. But I think, and I'm not suggesting Chris thinks this, but we don't want to attribute all the lack of trust to somehow people not understanding the way things work or having a cynical view. I mean, if I was in America in particular, I think my degree of trust would be hugely high. And I think what's quite interesting here is you got, you, you Trump talks about draining the swamp and, you know, Michael Gove in the UK from the conservatives talks about having too much of experts, although that's a, a slightly, um, misquoted, uh, phrase. And so we've come to see that kind of like, Trust as being something the the right is doing to erode things, but for decades the left has been telling us all the reasons we should distrust it. Right, so we talk about all the corporate lobbying in in the US, and it's true corporate corporate lobbying in the US is is terrible. There are loads of things that have concretely happened in America largely because of corporate uh, lobbying. And think about you know tobacco and oil, all, all these things they've been hugely powerful. And you know people on the left will give you no end of reasons to sort of like. Distrust the idea that our elected politicians are behaving on our behalf and that really they're they're responding to sort of capital, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, whichever way you look at it, I think if if, if the public is thinking to itself, you know, I, I think politics in in the Western democracies has really failed to deliver on acting in the best interests of the people as a whole, and has far too often acted on the interests of certain people only. If we can't see there's a lot of truth in that, I think we're in trouble, right? So I think that has to be addressed. It's not just about people understanding the way politics works and, and getting their expectations fixed. That is important, but it's not the whole thing. I mean, the lack of trust has some basis, right?
1: I think it clearly has some basis and I think one of the examples you raised earlier of the proroguing of Parliament gives you the perfect example of that. The Johnson government uh, knew that Parliament was going to vote against what it wanted. It just shut down Parliament um, and or, or the Queen did on the advice of, of Johnson uh, on the grounds that, uh, that he gave her advice that this was appropriate and then a subsequent investigation has shown that that was absolutely illegal. I mean th- the fact that that happened, I find truly shocking, and I find the, um, I don't understand why there has not been, why more hasn't happened on the on the basis of that outcome. I mean, why isn't Johnson in jail on on account of doing something so utterly illegal and undermining of Parliament? That seems dreadful. Now I sound like a Trump person, lock him up. Um it <laughs> um, um but it does seem to me utterly shocking that um that outcome I don't think received the attention that it it should have done. The the government just just pulled the plug on Parliament deciding what what should happen next. It was absolutely appalling. I mean yeah my trust is is has my, my trust in politics and the government has suffered.
2: Part of the issue here is that there's a variety of causal mechanisms, to some extent, that have have led to a decline in trust, and it's it's quite difficult to package them all together. I mean, to some extent, we we're still working on even under understanding what they all are. You know, the role of social media, for instance, you know what what is Elon Musk's eroding of of fact checkers in in Twitter going to do for people trusting systems? You know the the campaigns uh, and the media exposure. Uh, in campaigns, you know, Pencil- in Pennsylvania, there was uh, 312 million dollars spent in that campaign for for the Senate, just for the Senate seat there. Meaning that you know that that was more than twice the amount that was spent in any previous campaign, and that, people were just inundated with political ads saying the other side is wrong, the other side is wrong. So you know, you have all sorts of possibilities that undermine trust, and the thing. With trust is is there's a, a liter- there's a whole procedural justice literature that says that people must sort of see processes as being fair to accept the outcome of the process. Uh, you know, I'm willing to accept the outcome of a process if it's un if it's unfair. Uh, or, I mean, I'm not willing to accept the, the outcome of process if I see the process as being unfair. If the process goes and the outcome is something I don't like, but I think think the process was fair. I'm willing to accept it. So it's the, the, the processes and the procedures are actually really quite in, important in all of this. And I think this goes back around, uh, and then I'll stop here, with Fiona and, and Simon's sort of observations around the eroding of the independence of elections. So if people are seeing you know elections processes as being unfair, that makes it harder and harder for people to accept the outcome and trust the outcomes.
0: That's great. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Listen, all three of you, why don't we pause things there uh, to give ourselves a break and our our poor listeners as well and see if we can be a little bit more optimistic in the second half. Uh, But perhaps not, because in the second half, I want to continue this idea of trust. And let's bring in uh, kind of some other players that we've only briefly mentioned. So Chris mentioned the media uh, just now. Let's think about media information and trust, not just generally, but also in the context of, of the US elections in the second part. So we'll see you all then. And welcome back. Great. So uh, we left you on a knife edge. Uh, Chris had just been talking about uh, compromise uh, and various other things. And we got on to media and trust. And I suppose that's a really big player for me, uh, in many democracies, and particularly in the in the US about how politicians and other people, such as lobbyists that we mentioned as well, kind of use the media to put out their own take on what's happening and really to manipulate the information that everyone in society and uh, the voters have. And whenever we're talking about about trust uh, in the political process and trust in politicians, it relies so much on the information and the, and the view that we have. And that's shaped for me so much by the media. And in particular, when one thinks of the media, and Chris, you mentioned social media just before we broke. One thinks, of course, of Donald Trump uh, and Twitter in very recent years. And of course, he's a looming presence over this whole election. And everyone's asking now, with Elon Musk having taken Twitter, whether uh, Donald Trump will be allowed back in. So I'm just thinking that's a kind of Heady cocktail as well for us to continue our discussion, um, thinking about the the role of trust. Because if we're going to trust something, then we need to know what it is, it needs we need to understand what the information is that we have of something. And that's I think absolutely crucial in the democratic process. Uh, Fiona, I can see your hand up. Why don't you come in first?
1: Thanks, Simon. So I was just thinking about um, your comment about who controls and who um, affects. The media that we consume and the information that's out there and I think that something new has happened um, and something there's old worries but there's a a distinct new worry. So in the olden days before the internet uh, newspapers were the main source of information for many people and uh, of course newspapers were owned by individuals and companies. And we all worried, or we should worry, um, that, you know, who owned them slanted the the take on the news that was given in those. And it seemed that there was a kind of a a new hope in the internet era, that we sort of were moving into this kind of free for all where everyone could speak their mind. Uh, The internet was this kind of open channel where we could, you know, there was, uh, everyone could say whatever they wanted to say. Um, but then very quickly, of course, there was the corporatization and uh financialization of the internet. We're now, as we all know, we have Twitter, and um you know Twitter has just been bought out by Elon Musk, and there are particular worries about that happening. But before that, it was owned by another company. And so all the main channels, Facebook and other other sources, are available, as they say on the BBC. Um, they um you know, they're now all companies that are owned. And you might think, well, at least with the internet, we have the possibility of starting up a new social media channel that wouldn't be owned by anyone. Um, we could create that. In fact, there are ones out there that claim to be at least decentralized and to be more uh, not under the control of anyone. So you might think, oh, well, that's really good. Um, so we actually have the power in our own hands to do something about this. brilliant. But actually. I don't really think we do, because because those are all things that are online, they are all subject to Internet bots and AI programming, which can go in and skew them, even if they're set up to be uh, not influenced by companies that own them, uh, they can all be skewed in certain ways. And in fact, um, the the Russians, uh, I think uh, yesterday, admitted that, yes, they do interfere in American elections. And the way that they do it is by mass manipulation of media and information. So by turning to the internet, what seemed like this new hope of uh, democratization of information and uh, lack of sort of particular money control of things has fallen prey to actually the technology turns against us a little bit because you can set up uh, bots to to undermine uh, even, even the sort of freest and fairest of systems.
0: Yeah, thanks Fiona. Julian, Chris, any any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, one side of the equation is the
3: ownership, um, but the other side of the equation is, is the users, and I think that's kind of itself has always created problems. So if you think about the old newspapers, we think about who used to own them, but you know they were sustained by readerships, and you know the, the people who who bought them and put them out were. You know, uh, relying on the fact that, that they have a certain constituency which they need to please as well. So, you know, if the Daily Mail had been bought by someone who wanted to turn it into a, the, the voice piece of the Communist Party of Great Britain, it just simply would have lost its circulation, right? Uh, it, it had its position because it spoke to that constituency. And online, of course, there's a similar kind of thing goes on. So, even in a, even in a totally decentralized, unowned public domain, you get your kind of yeah, you know, these, especially in filter bubbles, you know, you tend to follow people who have similar views to you, exchange opinions with them. Uh, I mean, that's very interesting, because I know that empirically, there's some dispute about how much of an effect that is. And I think some studies suggest that people are exposed to more contrary views when they go on social media than not. But still, the, the, the psychological dynamic isn't the same. I think a lot of the time on social media, people relish being exposed to views which are contrary to their own. So it gives them the opportunity to sort of show how robust they are and, and to, to fend them off, right? So there's a, there's a lot of kind of like polarized um, activity on the web because people are coming into contact with people they disagree with and surrounded by their buddies who will like their uh, reposts rip- um, repost away with, with great whatever. So um, it's, it's not just about ownership and the technology. It's all about humans and, and how they behave and how they tend to flock together. And... You know, to, to sort of in that kind of space, to have the space where you can have some sort of source of impartial information. I think this is why I do believe in uh, well-funded and quality public s- service broadcasting. Because I think, for all its faults in in the UK, the BBC is still, I think, most people's primary source of news. Maybe not true of younger people, um, but as a population as a whole, it's the main source. And you know it's pretty impartial, I think you know I'm not it's certainly not perfect and it's got its uh, biases, but it's not blatantly partisan and that kind of is important. I, I, you, you worry what happens if you get a how a political system can work if, if there isn't any kind of source of such such information.
2: with both Fiona's and Julian's remarks there'm I'm, I'm, I'm reminded to the extent to, to think about the, the sort of underlying idea of what it is that we're supposed to be sort of achieving with the information flows in media and media and all that sort of stuff. And it sort of takes me back to the John Stuart Mill's idea of the marketplace of ideas, right? And this is supposed to be fundamentally what underlies uh, democratic discourse, is this idea that everybody should be basically allowed to say what, what they think that they uh, believe or what they feel or what they want to argue for in a, in a democratic information system, and that just as in the capitalist, capitalist economies where, you know, the, the the better products win out and are bought and sold and the inferior products die away, the idea is that, you know, the inferior ideas or the ideas that don't work will die away and the more prominent ideas continue in this marketplace of ideas. Well, I think there's a, this takes us back to Fiona's things with bots and AIs and all this sort of idea is that. The, it seems to me that the marketplace of ideas in the idea that, well, if you should give the crazy person or the person saying offensive things, you should give them the microphone because you allow them to amplify their ideas and then everybody else will point out, no, that's 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 sort of beyond the pale. You've gone too far. We're going to reject that offensive remark or, or whatever. But with bots and AI, those things get amplified. Um, and so the idea that, you know there's a, a a fair competition between ideas if you're going to have actors acting in in ways that are sort of nefarious or amplifying the ideas that are negative to increase affective polarization where i started out uh, at the beginning of the last conversation, and to amplify the idea that we dislike the other side, then that is going to to only lead to more and more polarization and more and more problems. So it seems to me that this, the whole underlying idea of the marketplace of ideas might be slightly undercut by some of the ways that algorithms work uh, in Facebook or AI bots and things like that.
3: Another thing about the marketplace of I- ideas is that well, I mean, look in the marketplace of like goods and everything. I mean, you can pretty much trust people to choose what's best, right? Because th- these are practical things; they work or they don't. Um, although, of course, having, having said that, I'm going to completely contradict myself. That's not true either, actually, because you can't trust people to buy what's healthiest for them, for example, because it's being the messages are being so manipulated by advertising. So, actually, with the information thing, so so all, all markets really that. The market model assumes that people are making judgments on the basis of of good reasons, right? And they're often not even in commodity markets and and trades and goods and services. And with politics even more so. And um, here's something I'm going to sound very kind of like um, almost platonic in my kind of uh, disdain here. But one thing that kind of worries me is that a lot of the kind of dangerous ideas knocking about uh, are, they fall in this space between people not thinking much at all and people thinking really, really well. So when people don't think much at all, they kind of just accept what they're told from, um, you know, the elites in inverted commas, pretty much unquestioningly, and often that's kind of right. When people think really, really hard, they can challenge those ideas and they can do that. Now, a lot of the dangerous ideas are for people, in, in if you look at their... You know their videos and all that kind of stuff. They're obsessed with the idea that you should think for yourself. You know, look for yourself, test the evidence. You know, all the conspiracy theorists. They're obsessed by this. and they do. They spend hours um, digging around the evidence, thinking for themselves. But uh, frankly, they don't do it very well, and so they end up, you know, throwing out the the consensus view and coming up with something really wacky and crazy. Crazy. So the, the, the marketplace of ideas we've got at the moment, I think, is kind of rewarding, uh, sort of low grade. Critical thinking um, more than it re- rewards either high grade critical thinking or kind of just 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 basically believing what um, the so called intelligent people tell you. So th- I find this really difficult because because if this is even remotely true, I don't know what the solution is because we want to encourage people to think for themselves and to reason, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it seems that you, you you let that genie out of the bottle unless people are doing it very very well. It's you know, the idea of a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. A little thinking is a dangerous thing, really, <laughs> it seems. You
1: need mandatory philosophical education for everyone, and then, then that's the solution to life's problems. <laughs>
3: it's got to be very high grade, though. I think, I think, I think, I think uh, you know, a sort of a, a little primer on philosophy is even worse because you know what it's like when people get a bit of philosophy. They just go around saying, oh, well, well, how do you know that then, A, You know, that kind of smart-ass way. Or, well, it's all relative, isn't it? You know, so you teach people a bit of philosophy not very well. And it's worse. They just behave like, you know, really annoying people.
1: Yeah, but that's great. We just need mandatory philosophical education from, you know, primary one through to uh, sixth form colleges and uh, perfect.
2: Perhaps
0: that, that um that phrase, Julian, a little thinking is a dangerous thing should be the tagline for this podcast. <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, I, I mean, actually, I was thinking I'd steer you on to all this. Let, let's do it now because i, I OK. Let, let's make an assumption. Democracy is good, right? As as uh, difficult and as um, awkward sometimes democracy can be. I think Winston Churchill did get it right. It's the best uh, of, of of all of them, even though it's sometimes bad. So, how do we get ourselves out of this? I mean, how does? And let's turning back in particular to to the starting point. Now, how does America get itself? Out of this because Chris started us by, by saying at the moment there's a huge amount of, of uh, polarization in America which is both Democrat Republican it's on ge- geographic lines some makes sense on racial lines I mean it's you know how do we get democracy back to where we need it to be any any easy answers okay I'll try my, my favorite answer I actually am
3: quite encouraged by and uh, keen on these various ideas around deliberative democracy. So the idea here is that the problem with democracy is that people are making choices on the basis of scant information, n- not a lot of thinking, poor thinking, and the alternative is to leave it to the hands of, of a narrow set of the population who tend to come from particular backgrounds with particular interests and so know that those things work. A lot of these things around deliberative democracy are the idea that, you know, so you, if you draw lots, for example, you just take 100 random people from the population and you sit them in a room for, um, you know, a week or something to really go through an issue carefully with all the information. I think, I, I believe, Chris can burst this bubble if I'm wrong, I believe that the evidence seems to suggest that most of the time people come to pretty sensible conclusions and they can also come to a sort of a, a broad agreement about things. And this is kind of legitimizing because you know if, if decisions are made in this way, I mean they're always going to be people who distrust that, and say, oh, you know, they fixed who was in, blah, blah, blah. But if it's done, if it's done properly, you know, you, you've got a group of ordinary citizens, uh, representative, you know, weighted for age, you know, gender, sexuality, ethics, status, etc. You know, if they've thought it through and they've come to a recommendation, that could have a legitimacy. Which I think just uh, elected politicians uh, wouldn't have. So I'm quite keen on this. Of course, it hasn't been tried on large scale. So it is slightly unproven, but I'd definitely like to see many, many more experiments on this. You know, I mean, you know, imagine, let's try and imagine. I mean, in, in Ireland, for example, I think they. I hope I'm not wrong about this. I, I believe in 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 Ireland some of the reform around abortion involved certain processes like this. I think, and that that I think again gave gave the final sort of like a recommendation a kind of legitimacy which you otherwise might not have
0: had. So let, let's try that. Thanks, Julian Chris.
2: So um, just a, a, a fun side fact first on 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 deliberative democracy stuff. Some of the first larger scale. Attempts at, at deliberative democracy, you can you can see the videos that they recorded from them on on YouTube and the one of the, perhaps one of the most interesting it was it's a uh, James Fishkin uh, it's Fishkin and Luskin uh, are the two political scientists who, who, sort, who sort, wow. sort of pioneered some of this stuff and the first one was in Manchester and uh, you can find a very uh, young Tony Blair uh, being questioned by members of the audience uh, uh, when he was uh, home secretary uh, about crime policy um, on that. So it's, it's well worth a watch. Uh, and it, you show it to students and they're somewhat shocked. It's, it's, I think it's it's quite positive, Julian, that you stopped with with deliberative democracy as opposed to using the, the usual tagline of deliberative and participatory democracy. Because I was reminded that the thing with deliberative democracy is, A, you have all the problems of recruiting the, the audience and the participants as you sort of hinted at. But getting the people to turn up and getting them to turn up in the right mindset is quite important. So it seems like my role today is to throw out random bits of political science uh, research and references. So there's a, there's a, a great book by Diana Mutz uh, called Hearing the Other Side, where she looks at the, and she says that you actually have a conflict between deliberative democracy and participatory democracy. And the sorts of things that you need to encourage people to deliberate, that is, you need to encourage them to want to hear the other side, to listen, to sit down and think things through and be calm, that, that encourages people to deliberate. And you get sort of one kind of outcome out of that. But the things that encourage people to deliberate are sort of exactly the sorts of things that turn people off participatory democracy, that is getting out to vote, because you know once you think that oh well the other side might actually have some points and all that and well it's all it's all okay and i don't really need to to get out to vote it's fine the things that encourage people to get out to vote are exactly the sorts of things that we're seeing in america right now why is america actually having a boom in turnout at midterm elections so in 2018 turnout was 49.4% which is the highest since uh, 1914 in in the last midterm elections and we expect we don't know the numbers but we expect it to be higher this time uh, than it was in 2018 turnout why because exactly the sorts of things that get people to participate the other side is wrong they're bad they're scary we need to stop them are exactly the sorts of things that turn people off wanting to deliberate so if you're going to encourage people to participate uh, get out vote and all that you have to encourage them in ways that makes them not want to hear the other side and compromise as we've talked about previously. but the things that makes them want to deliberate and compromise are so it's it's there's a trade-off there and a tension and I think that's one of the things that to get back to to Simon's question you know one of the issues that you have to sort out is how do you how do you sort of negotiate those two tensions uh, within within the systems is going to be the the problem.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, Chris. It makes a lot of sense, particularly with, with America, uh, where it is now, but you can say that about quite a few democracies. Um, and I can certainly see that, that tension at work. I suppose that one way of, one way of, um, of resolving that is just as you were explaining it, that the, the, the participation at the moment, in many countries, particularly the US relies on, you know, this is the biggest election since the last one, we've got to stop those guys, the stakes are really high and all, all that stuff. But in a way, people should be motivated to vote because the stakes are high anyway, because we're deciding on education policy and the defence of the country and, you know, all the other things that we that we rely on. So, I mean, what we need to do is make sure that people participate in democracies because they're all about, you know, things that really affect us rather than the election itself. <laughs> that's the, but that's that's easier, far easier said than done, I think. Um, Fiona, why don't you come in?
1: Yeah, so I I think that education has to play an absolutely vital, vital role in all of this. So. We need to be educating our young people about politics, about civic engagement. We need to be encouraging people to get involved in helping to run elections and uh, and and just generally uh, participating in our public life. And the more that we have um, opportunities for young people to do that, the more opportunities are there are for them to learn about that, the better. So I think that's definitely one strand. And I think the other strand comes from thinking about the polarization of, of politics and the fact that there's you know often two distinctive, very different camps. When I think of situations like that, I always go back and think about what happened in Northern Ireland. So um, I have a lot of friends from Northern Ireland and when I was growing up, it was at the time of the Troubles and I've talked to a lot of my friends there and um, who, who were growing up at that point too. And one of the things that seemed to do an awful lot of good in Northern Ireland was bringing together the two sides in when otherwise uh, they wouldn't have. So uh, for example, Protestant children would um, go to a Protestant school, be part of a Protestant community and be living, you know, not far away from Catholic children who were going to Catholic schools um, and in their communities. And the two would never meet. They, some friends of mine said they got to the age of 17. They'd never met a person from the other side. And then uh, a lot of, a lot all, all that generation uh, all went away to camps. Uh, they were all taken away to basically a summer camp where uh, there was a mixture of Protestants and Catholics at that camp and they were thrown together. And everyone that I know who went to a camp like that just came away an utterly changed person and had now made friends with people from the other side, didn't see the other side as this. The, yeah as this terribly other and different creature and i think i think when you have polarization the more that you can get two sides to talk together to engage with each other to understand each other and see that you know on on in many ways you know we're all the same despite our differences the more that we can do that as well as educate people i think the more chance we have of um of reaching um of getting over uh the the polarization and, and perhaps coming to something like a compromise
3: i mean just on the education issue I, I i kind of do find myself a little alarm goes off you know to hammer everything else like a nail and people in education are always saying that the solution to everything is more education right but i mean I, I say that with my skeptical hat on but i think there's it's just true education plays a huge role but i think the other aspects of what fiona's talked about is is at least as important and probably more which is the, the modelling and the instantiation of it, giving people the lived experience of things. I mean, if you want to prepare uh, young people to be feel they're part of a society where their views count and where they need to be understanding, empathetic, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you need schools where that's kind of modelled. And you also need, you know, a society which delivers on that promise. There's no point in teaching people about how great and fair dem- democratic procedures are and everything if they can see that they aren't. So I think education is, is important. Fiona's right, but the 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 actual giving people the lived experience, which um, enables them to see that these aren't just fine words, is absolutely vital too.
0: Great, thanks, Julian. Uh, that was all really helpful, and thanks uh, also, Fiona and, and Chris. So we've gone across lots of different topics there, just starting with the uh, US elections, as I as, I'm, as I, I thought we would, uh, and we could carry on and on and on and as uh, Chris reminded us right at the start from when we're recording. This will run and run and run, both election results themselves and then reactions to them. But let's uh, let's call a halt to things there um, and thank all three of our guests for giving up their time. So, Fiona, thanks very much for coming on again.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Simon.
0: Uh, and Julian, thanks uh, to you as well. Thanks, Simon. Good to be back. And Chris, thanks for your first appearance. It was really great to have you with us.
2: Thank you very much. Enjoy.
0: Uh, And thanks to you for listening. Hope you enjoyed um, uh, this episode. Uh, And just a quick advert. We'll be doing another special uh, recording next week, all being well, on the 2022 FIFA World Cup to be held in Qatar. Uh, But until then, uh, have a great week and all being well. We'll see you again for another episode of Philosophy Takes on the News.